A real-life Halloween horror scene is discovered at a home in a small city of Portage La Prairie in Manitoba in 2007. Upon entering her mother's bedroom, Sherry finds a gruesome scene that no daughter should ever experience. This is Cold Canada Episode 5, Halloween Horror. Portage La Prairie, located 75 kilometers west of Manitoba's capital city, Winnipeg. Never heard of it? Me either. But after researching for this story, it looks like a beautiful place to visit. With a population of just over 13,000, it's the ideal place for viewing trains. There are approximately 72 trains that pass through there every single day. Not only is it the home of the largest Coca-Cola can, it's also surrounded by loads of beautiful farmland. And its city center is a unique horseshoe-shaped lake, appropriately named Crescent Lake. Along this lake is the Midtown Motor Inn. Connected to the inn is a trendy nightclub where the story all begins. Arlene Ward was a 46-year-old mother of two and grandmother of two at the time. She worked at a local coffee shop and lived with her youngest daughter, Brittany. Charlene had been divorced for years and her eldest daughter, Sherry, had moved out. According to family and friends, Charlene was a happy-go-lucky type of person who always had a smile on her face. She enjoyed socializing with friends and being a grandmother. I spoke with Charlene's younger sister, Donna Wetlofer, who was 41 at the time of her sister's murder. Bits of our interview will be throughout this episode for a little more insight on the story and on Charlene. Can know kind of what kind of person she was? It, um, she was um, caring and giving. And she was uh, spunky. She, uh, she had lots of grandchildren. And she had uh, two girls. She loved her grandchildren. One was born a week before she was murdered. And now she's got a couple of great-grandchildren. That, uh, one was just born the day before yesterday, actually. Charlene was diagnosed with breast cancer a year prior to her murder. She had a lumpectomy and was given the news she was cancer-free a month or two before she was murdered. She had cancer, breast cancer, so she had one of her breasts, uh, a lump taken out, and then she went through chemo and radiation. And she had just gotten a bill of, a clean bill of health, just, uh, I think it was a month or two just before she got murdered. And so she went through all those treatments for almost a year there, so then they just... And she did get cleared of it in the end of it, yeah. so, yeah. yeah. On the cool evening of October 31st, 2007, Charlene and some of her friends have a Halloween evening plan in place. After work, Charlene and some of her co-workers left from work and headed to the Cat and Fiddle nightclub, a popular local spot known for great music and fun atmosphere. The group stayed until closing time, but didn't want the party to end there. Charlene offered up her house to continue the festivities. They all hopped in a cab. The group made their way to the 5th Avenue home at approximately 2 a.m. The bash lasted into the early hours of November 1st, with the last of the guests trickling out around 8 a.m. This wasn't a regular thing for Charlene. She didn't regularly host or attend parties. 
so this i understood she had like a party the night before well some kind of like a gathering is she like was she super social like did she go out quite a bit no she was she actually just got off work at nine o'clock the night before and it was halloween night so a bunch of the workers from where she was working went there and went to the cat and fiddle and then they went back to her uh, her daughter's place yeah because it said it was her and her daughter's place but it, so it was she was living with her daughter was that more yeah. of an accurate yeah. yeah okay um so it wasn't a regular thing for her to like party and that kind of thing oh. kind of a once a year or a couple times a year type of thing yeah at some point between 8 and 8 45 a.m something terrible occurs Charlene's youngest daughter calls her older sister, Sherry, around 8.45 a.m. Brittany explained there was a party at the house that she shared with her mother the night before and said Charlene must have hit her head or something because there was a lot of blood on the floor. In a panic, Sherry grabs her daughter and makes her way to her mother's and sister's house. Upon entering the home, Sherry knows immediately something is wrong. Brittany is already headed to the neighbors, assuming to go call for help. She calls for her mother, and when she doesn't get a response, she tells her daughter to stay put and heads upstairs. The first thing she saw was blood. Lots and lots of blood. Like a scene from a horror film, blood is splattered across the walls, on the floor, and bed. Lying on the floor was Charlene, a ruby red circle surrounding her, and dark arterial blood caked around her neck. Sherry immediately calls 911, but couldn't quite comprehend the severity of the situation. It didn't sound urgent when her sister called. She didn't believe her mother was dead. It wasn't until after medics arrived and told her to wait outside for the cops that it sunk in. Her mother was gone. Charlene had been stabbed three times in the neck. Instantly, it was ruled a homicide. Donna was informed shortly after the murder occurred she describes the call as shocking. I also, when I was looking into it, because she was reported, it was reported her daughter found her that day. When were you informed of this? I was informed at 9.33 a.m. Okay, so not very long after it actually occurred. I was at work and uh, I had just been on my break and my, my one niece had phoned me and said that somebody murdered her mother. The crime scene was processed, blocking off the home with yellow tape. No physical evidence was found. RCMP identified everyone who was at the house that evening and interviewed them individually. The investigation ensued, but with no evidence and no witnesses, the case was at a standstill. After years with no clues, the case goes cold. Um, and what what was your response to how police handled the investigation, like initially and I guess ongoing? Well, initially, I thought, oh great, they're here already, they're going to get their job. But it took them almost three hours before they blocked off the roadway and stuff, and any roads around there to any evidence could have been lost there, I think. Yeah, and anybody trying to get away would kind of be... Cars and, and people were walking, and so anybody could have drove around there and walked around there. And they finally blocked it off 
a few hours later, yeah. Because I went and I had to go find my dad and tell him. Because mm-hmm. my dad was still working at that time and he was working on a job somewhere. So I had to go try and track him down and tell him, which is not a good not good news to tell your dad. No, not at all. I can, no, not at all. He must have been devastated with the news as well. Yeah. Um, and in the ongoing, like since it went all, it did go... I mean, I know it's still like technically open and active, but it did go cold after a while. Do you yeah, well, feel like they didn't really do the job that they should have done with it, or? No, no. All I ever get is it's ongoing. I phone usually once a year, closer to the date, and they just keep saying it's ongoing. It's ongoing. They don't really have anything to yeah. go off of. On May tenth, two thousand seventeen. Nearly 10 years after the murder took place, someone was arrested. What shocked a lot of people was that it was her youngest daughter, Brittany Lake, who had been detained in connection with her mother's murder. It was not released what charges she was arrested on, but that it was related to Charlene's death. The now 30-year-old woman was released without charge the following day. Although police claim the case is still open and active, there has been no further clues found or arrests made. Here's what Donna had to say about Brittany's arrest. What was your um, what was your reaction was when Brittany was arrested? I thought, oh great, we got to, uh, finally got some news, but then they had to release her because they couldn't charge her with anything. Were you surprised that it was her that they took in? Yes and no. <laughs> If that makes any sense. Did you want to elaborate at all on that? Well, I don't know if... I'm not 100% sure it was her. I can't say it was her. But she was with her mother in that house and her kids. And I don't know. It's just, it's weird to me that you can't hear somebody scream. Yeah, that, that you could be there and not... Yeah. But, or hear anything. Yeah, and the wounds on my sister's body were like defensive wounds. So she put up a good fight. She was skinny, but she could fight. (laughs) (laughs) Wiry. (laughs) But she put up a good fight and tried to defend herself. So it was, yeah, that would be assumed that maybe it was somebody that was bigger than her and that kind of overpowered her. Yeah, that's another thing because. I'm sure she could have taken her daughter on if it was her. It was never released or explained why Brittany was arrested, especially so long after the murder happened. It makes me wonder what clues the police found that potentially connected her to the crime. Was it an anonymous tip? Was evidence collected from the crime scene reanalyzed? Why was she detained then released? What cleared her so quickly? The coverage on this arrest was very vague and an odd turn of events. Donna states that Brittany had to take a lie detector test and it wasn't clear to her what the final results of that test was. There was one thing too, like there's lie detector tests and that done and they were inconclusive. Like what's inconclusive? That's what I want from like an RCMP standpoint. Like, And do you know who who had to take them? Yeah, Brittany had to take one. Okay. 
So inconclusive, meaning like they couldn't detect that she was lying, but they couldn't detect that she wasn't lying either, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of... But we're getting told different stories from these investigators, too, I find. I don't know. Because the one time they said it was inconclusive, and now this one, when she got arrested last time, something... I'm pretty sure they told Sherry that she was lying, so... So there's nothing, like, not a straight story across the board anywhere. Yeah. When I first read this story, I did find it suspicious that Charlene was killed between 8 a.m. and 8.45 a.m., but somehow no one saw anything, including Brittany, who lived there. I couldn't find any detail on if Brittany was at the house all evening and participated in the festivities, or if she was somewhere else. It was confirmed by Donna that Brittany had been with her mother at the Cat and Fiddle all evening and came home with her to join the party. Donna also noted Brittany had a one-week-old child at the time. Something must have cleared her as a suspect at the time of the killing and when she was arrested a decade later. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. Brittany did live at that house with her children and her mother, so it's assumed that she would have been home all evening as her kids lived there and she wouldn't have just left. But again, this is all just speculation because I have really no definite information that she was home all evening and into that morning. Charlene's family is understandably frustrated. They want closure for her death and for someone to take responsibility for the brutal crime. She was killed so violently and Sherry had been trying to process emotionally and mentally what she saw for years now. According to an interview she did with the Winnipeg Free Press, Sherry explains how what she witnessed that day affected her. She turned to drugs and alcohol to cope rather than expressing herself to those close to her. She ended up leaving her hometown and now lives about two hours away with her husband and kids. Donna states that Sherry blames Brittany for the murder of their mother. So if you want somebody arrested, are you looking for more closure or more justice or kind of a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. Um, My dad, he passed away and he never got to see justice for his daughter and which he really, he took it hard. He took it really hard when he uh, had to bury her. Yeah. Well, no, but no parent wants to bury their child. Absolutely. It's been hard. Every year we have November 1st, we always, Sherry go. her daughter, Sherry goes through like depression and stuff. And we haven't seen, I have not seen Brittany since before my dad's funeral. Yeah, we don't talk at all. She has nothing to do with our family, like Sherry, her sister even, because her sister won't talk to her at all, so. Oh, okay. So does her sister kind of feel like that's, it's, a bit of her fault yeah. as well. Yeah, no, she she blames her totally. Okay, so she's been outcasted from the family. Yeah. As of today, there hasn't been any further information on what happened that morning, who could have possibly done this, and why. Donna has a message for the killer. A message for the person who did kill your sister, um, what would that be? Um, message would be how would you like it if one of your family members was taken from you and 
you've gotten no closure whatsoever. All you ask for is closure and justice for her or him, you know, whatever. And uh, just to come forward. Yeah, just to come forward and not stop yeah. being a coward. Exactly. Because that's what they're being, is cowards. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even I mean, to, to just kill someone so brutally, it's just awful. Yeah. You can take somebody's life, but you can't turn yourself in. Like, give me a break, man. Yeah, exactly. And to tear a family apart, too. Oh, yeah, like this. Yeah. I want to just take a moment and thank Donna for speaking with me and interviewing with me and being so open about her sister's investigation and the case itself. She thanked me uh, in in the interview, but I really want to say thank you to her. It means the world to me that she could open up and put more information to this story. I thank you for keeping these cold cases out in the forefront because everybody should get closure. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's that, that's the one thing that I feel bad for is the families. It's like it's awful to have to not know for so long. Because mm-hmm. it was, it'll be 13 years this year, 2007. Yeah, 13 years this year. If you have any information related to this case, please contact Crime Stoppers or the RCMP. As always, the links and phone numbers will be in the episode notes. My name is Heather Curran, and this has been Cold Canada, Episode 5. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go rate and review on iTunes. If you haven't already, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go follow me at Cold Canada Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Episodes are now being streamed on YouTube. Just search Cold Canada Podcast or go through the link in the notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash coldcanadapodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash coldcanadapodcast. The full interview with Donna will be posted on there for patrons. Once again, my name is Heather Curran, and this has been